Uh, hey everyone, it's a Friday night, it's episode 45, we're doing end of week Broken Brews, AMA, any topic kind of open for discussion. Um, let me know what you cracked open tonight. Um, I, as I mentioned, I've been kind of mostly dry lately as I'm, I'm doing personal training, uh, but I did, I did open the Jameson uh, a little bit. And prior to this, I just threw my best uh, touchdown football pass on uh, Madden 23 that I'd ever thrown from Gardner Minshew, the quarterback of my Denver Broncos, to Jerry Judy. So I'm kind of in a good mood. Yes, that's right. I traded Russell Wilson. Um, but uh, we saw a few things this week, as we talked about last night. Obviously, the press running to defend Stacey Abrams, um, redefining what a fetal heartbeat is and also uh, what, what an ultrasound is. I didn't... I, I know we talked about this last night, but I was until I went back and actually listened to it and broke it down on the podcast today. I had to like really go back and listen to how insane her soundbite is because she never actually talks about an ultrasound. She just says that a six, a six week heartbeat is a manufactured sound. <laughs> so she just cut out the, uh, the ultrasound completely. Uh, but we went through that. Obviously, we, we talked about Joe Biden's 60 Minutes presser this week. Um, we also saw today the Dow Jones close at its lowest point of the year, while uh, KGP once again kind of gaslit the country from the uh, the press podium. I, one of the things I can't always I can't help but notice again is how the press briefings during the Trump administration were like appointment television for fact checkers, for journalists, every single one of them would drop whatever they're doing and log in and uh, pay attention to whatever Kaylee McEnany or Sean Spicer or whomever was talking. And they would do these live fact checks like on Twitter. Like it was almost like a competition. And ever since pretty much the start of the Biden administration, they have completely forgotten that they even, that they even exist to begin with. Um, and we've, we've seen a few this week. We saw a good one today from Peter Ducey, which went against also, uh, Glenn Kessler did a fact check on the claim, the, the Republican claim that Democrats want abortion up to birth. And instead of addressing that claim, Glenn Kessler decided to address the frequency of late term abortions, which were two separate. The, the claim is completely separate than the actual, uh, frequency and of course, Glenn Kessler could not fact check the claim because we know that that's what they want. And today, uh, when pressed by Peter Ducey, uh, Karine Jean-Pierre would not answer the question about at what point does Joe Biden believe abortion should be capped? 15 weeks, 20 weeks, 10 weeks, three weeks, five weeks, seven, you know, whatever. And so to me, if you're going to evade that kind of question, I have to assume that you want un basically unfettered, unlimited abortion. Uh, not to like get too serious on your Friday night, but that was kind of the topic of the week. And Stacey Abrams kind of stole the show uh, this week. And like I said, you had all of Twitter jumping in. You actually had the platform of Twitter jumping in to spin what she said. And they all just kind of slid past this idea that the ultrasound was created uh, by men to control women's bodies or something. I don't know. Go see Don't Worry Darlene this week. I, I don't know what to tell you. Um so there was a kind of a lot of things up in up in the air and to review this week uh, as far as media, as far as media culture, what's happening. Um, so this was just kind of like a, a weekend wrap up, hopefully nothing too serious, casual conversation. Um, 
we'll go for an hour. For those of you who missed last night, this is kind of a spillover from that. And then we might also do brunches for assholes tomorrow. So tonight we're doing what you're cracking open, tomorrow what you're doing to recover. Um, so again, as usual, we'll probably go for about an hour. We'll go until about 9 p.m. Eastern. So you're not all stuck here tonight. I'm, I am still fighting a cold, as I mentioned on my, on my podcast. It's not COVID. Uh, I took two COVID tests. So this is just the usual junk. And that also kind of like tipped me off to this brave new world we're living in, where every time we get a cold, we have to figure out if it's COVID or not. Um, so no, I did not join the three timers club. It's just kind of like, I think just like a dry head cold. So, uh, I don't, I don't really want to be here past, you know, 9 PM anyway. So, uh, we'll just kind of do this. It'll be fun and casual. Anyone who wants to call in, just jump into the queue. I'll get through as many people as I can as usual. Be mindful. There might be people behind you. Uh, we kind of just go with the flow of things conversationally. So some people are longer than others, but whatever. And then if you can also just remember to mute your microphone if you're not talking, that helps me not be distracted. And also it just makes it a more pleasuring, pleasurable listening experience for the listeners, uh, quoting Steve Martin from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Uh, so again, uh, let me know. Let me know how your 401k is doing after today. Uh, it's interesting. We, we did see kind of this kind of day just get glossed over completely when it was basically uh, – the Dow Jones closed basically at its lowest point of the entire year, uh, while again Biden is entertaining Elton John at the White House in what I think is just another elaborate troll of Trump. I actually genuinely believe that because Trump loves Elton John and they're doing pretty much anything and everything in their power to keep him in the news and to make sure keep Trump keeps himself in the news. Heading into the election, I fully 100% believe this is an election strategy, as is with uh, Letitia James in New York uh, with this lawsuit on Trump. He certainly doesn't do himself any favors. Um, but w one of the things that's interesting about Trump's financial stuff is, and I've said this before on the podcast, is if, you, if you've been around a while, if you've been around through the 80s and the 90s, Trump isn't exactly someone who lived, you know, quietly. He's not someone who did things kind of under the table. He was very loud and out about his wealth and his money. And when they can catch someone like Leona Hemsley or Martha Stewart goes to prison for insider trading, it's shocking to me that for some reason through the, throughout those entire, entire 25, 30 years of Trump being in the limelight without being a politician, that magically they never found anything on him in New York. Now, that could be he was just paid up with the right people. He could be taking advantage of tax loopholes, tax laws, which is kind of what I think it is. Um, but it's interesting that just now we're filing lawsuits over Trump's finances. And if you've been around the block with him and you're familiar with his actions in New York City and just his lifestyle, uh, now is not the time where I'm sitting here going, oh, you definitely found something on him this time, as opposed to if charges were brought against him like in 1988. <laughs> so I do think there is an element of political stunt here. I do think there's an element of coordination with national, uh, with the Biden administration on all of this stuff. As I've said, you have to be uh, blind or a child or a fetus to believe that the Biden administration did not have a heads up on what was happening at Mar-a-Lago and the FBI. Um, that's all good in politics. In my opinion, the Biden administration is doing what they can heading into the midterms. Uh, I also just happen to think this is all a futile attempt, and I don't think anyone really cares about Donald Trump heading into the midterms when, again, uh, inflation is where it's at, and they just saw like their 401k lose 20% of its value in a single day. So just some setup thoughts. Uh, we'll go for about 50, 50-some-odd 50 minutes here. 
Uh, we already have some four callers there. Uh, it's good. It's not my usual sausage fest. I have uh, David and then uh, three ladies. So don't be afraid. If you haven't talk, jumped in before, again, it's open topic. Anything that's on your mind uh, with media, with politics, just um, feel free to jump into the queue, speak your mind. We're pretty, we're pretty unassuming here. Um, and uh, I don't really like kick anybody out of the room. Uh, I might kick David out. We'll see what kind of like crazy theory he has for me here. So just jumping right in. Uh, like I said, we'll go for about 15 minutes. David, you're up. How are you? Uh, what are we cracking this Friday night? How are you? Um, and, and hopefully uh, this isn't a, a kick-outable <laughs> topic, but you'll, you'll let me know. Um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on, uh, on the Kevin Williamson thing. I uh, listened to their Mad Dogs and Englishmen podcast i'm you know I'm, I'm a fan of both of those guys i love their writing um you know i know that kevin williamson who's a who's brilliant they're both brilliant guys uh is kind of an eccentric character in a lot of ways kevin williamson and um but i just wanted to get your take on it it sounded like there was some bad blood between them uh, a little bit only because well maybe on charlie's part because uh, I don't know if you heard this or not, Stephen, but he on the most recent Mad Dogs was all of five minutes long. It was just Charlie talking, uh, and he and he announced that this was the end of their kind of podcast partnership, and because Kevin had gone over to the Dispatch, he did not pointedly he did not say anything like uh, "I wish him well," "I wish him you know all the luck," blah blah blah, nothing like that, uh, which is what you would say if you were still on you know when you're still on good terms with someone so i wanted to get your just take on the whole situation and what you think might be going on behind the scenes uh i'll start by saying i i know both of them obviously um not not real personally i i obviously worked alongside charlie at national mm-hmm. review um kevin i had met occasionally the, the funny story i have with williams is the first time i met him i actually got to kick him out of my desk at national review um because it was i was coming in for my first day and he was actually sitting in the uh the, the cubby that i was supposed to occupy so i was i, I joked with him i was like just get the hell out of here um and i and i met him shortly in dc after the brouhaha with the atlantic where uh williamson and charlie cook did a like a live podcast where williamson finally he kind of finally address the whole thing that happened at the Atlantic. Um, as far as behind the scenes, personal stuff, I don't have, I don't really know much. I don't really have an opinion on it, if I'm being honest. Um, and if I did, I probably wouldn't tell you guys because as I've said before, personal squabbles in this kind of stuff don't really interest me. And I don't know if there's a personal squabble there or not. I genuinely don't talk about these kinds of things with these these writers that you know you all know of and i don't pretend to have access to a lot of them that you think i might have i do i do talk to charlie a lot um mainly you know through dm and through whatever and stuff like that but it's it's always to do with policy it's never every once in a while i'll ask him how he's doing down in florida and you know how his kids are doing but it's never really personal it's always about policy and it's mainly when you know we're picking each other's brains uh just infinitely because I'm usually only DMing people I think that are smarter than me, um, which is a lot of people. But um, I, I don't have a lot of behind the scenes stuff because I just I don't ask them about it. I'm not interested in about it. I'm not in this to kind of get gossip on people or anything like that. 
Um, my my professional take on what you're seeing a lot is I genuinely don't even think there is conservative media anymore. And as I was thinking about Williamson going over to the dispatch, which isn't that shocking. I mean, I know I've listened to Mad Dogs and Englishman. I know the takes. I don't think there's maybe bad blood there, but if, if you recall, national review did a, uh, did a series during the election where one said Trump, never one wrote Trump, maybe one wrote Trump. Yes. And they got a bunch of different takes. And Kevin Williamson's take is vote every Republican out of office. He's kind of along the lines of the Tom Nichols of whatever, where it's just like the only way to reform the Republican Party is to punish every single person who currently holds office. I mean, that's a great theory, but that's not reality. That's not going to happen. And so whenever somebody kind of says that, I kind of laugh about it, especially in a two party system. Do I wish we had more options? Sure. Uh, But deal I try to deal in realities of situations. So when you get Williamson or you get people like Tom Nichols who's like the only way to reform this party is to kick all of them out of office. And it's I just sit there and I laugh and I'm like, Tom, apparently the only thing not working in your body isn't your legs, it's also your brain. Um so I, I look at it and I just say, that's an unrealistic option. So what are your options? Do you not want Trump to be in office? Okay, that's a pretty realistic option. You can write your words and rouse your rabble, and um, you can do that. I don't know who you think you're going to be talking to at a place like the Dispatch, where they're not talking to conservative voters anymore. Um, I I address this a little bit on my podcast, and and I wish all the best for Kevin. I like Kevin. I don't have anything like like that. But I, I would question, what is your goal? What what? What are you? What do you think your goal is right now? If you're a political writer, y- you would think the obvious goal is to persuade people, to show people arguments, um, to show your point of view, and say, "Hey, here's what I think." It's a somewhat educated uh, guess. It's a somewhat educated point of view that will get people to go, mm-hmm, "Yeah, yeah, I see this." Whatever. And when you go to a place like the Dispatch, and I talked about this a little bit on my podcast this week, and again, I don't really harbor any ill feelings towards most of those people, a couple, eh. um, but I guess I look at it and I see that they're all gathering at the Ritz-Carlton Naples, Florida for a soiree that costs up to $3,000. And I look at that and I say, who exactly are you trying to reach? And I I said this back when David French debated Soa Bamari and everyone was cheering this on. It was on Twitter and people were there and people were cheering on Soa. We were going after David and Dave, people, you know, corporate media was, you know, corporate David's kind of friends were cheering on David and it was hosted by Ross Dufat and all this stuff. And people were trying to like peg me to get my take on it. And I don't even think I tweeted about it. It completely disinterested me. Because I've always said conservative punditry suffers from the fact that you guys are all over here on a yacht talking amongst yourselves while over here is a sinking barge with all of the GOP voters and you don't care about them. And as I've said, that to me, large in part led straight to Donald Trump. You stopped talking to voters and you started talking at them and voters aren't stupid. Eh, They're kind of stupid, but they aren't stupid when it comes to what they read and who they listen to. And when you start holding your donor soirees on Ritz Carlton, you know, world famous Tiburon golf courses, instead of say, mm, I don't know, college campuses, or you know, I, I even say go to a fucking YMCA. I don't care. 
But when you start, when you stop talking to people, someone is going to fill that void. When you go over here and you just write off college voters or young kids or 25 to 30 year olds and your whole donor class is a bunch of 50 to 60 year olds, someone is going to fill that void. And if that someone is Milo Yiannopoulos or if that someone is Richard Spencer or if that someone is Breitbart or if that someone is Jack Posobiec or Mike Cernovich or whatever people I'm no fans of, I don't really tolerate your need to complain about what happened to the Republican base. And so Williamson going to the dispatch isn't really surprising to me, but the thing I've thought about is there's, I talked with David French when Trump happened on, on my podcast, one of the first episodes, and the topic was the fracturing of conservative media, which is what Trump kind of did. Uh, I mean, Trump basically caused the weekly standard to go under. And as I said, uh, I talked to someone in that arena who basically said the strategy at Weekly Standard was we can't attack the media because we need the media to go after Trump. That was an actual quote from some not making it up from someone in like literally a source that is in the first to second person with what was going on at Weekly Standard. A lot of the reason you see a lot of bulwark people have a hard on for the Washington Examiner is because the same owners carried Washington Examiner and carried uh, Weekly Standard, and they basically said, we're dropping Weekly Standard. So when you see Jim Swift drunk tweeting from his account on the weekends at Washington Examiner, it's personal. And it's personal for a lot of those people. And and it's just not personal for me. I, I don't, for every comments I get uh, on my on my podcast going after someone like French or Williamson, I, I just kind of shrug and I'm like, I don't care. I mean, if you don't care, don't read them. But the thing with Williamson, I realize is there's not really conservative media anymore. And what do I mean by that? Well, you don't really, you do have conservative journalists. So you do have people, you know, you have people free beacon, you have people like Chuck Ross, you have people, you know, you have people who are out there and you do have kind of conservative websites, but is it is in no way coalesced the way that it was prior to 2016. Um, you still have Brandon Darby of Breitbart, Texas, for instance, who, who's very good. So you do have good conservative reporters, but there really isn't a conservative media sphere. There's Fox News, obviously. Um, there's there there are conservative outlets, but nobody can come to a consensus on a single fucking thing. You would argue that the dispatch is conservative media. Some people might argue it's not um, strictly because of its anti-Trump and anti-Trumpism stance. And so. The way I look at this is there's just right now it's it's kind of just a bunch of people fending for themselves. Um, I'm certainly no different. I don't really have a tribe. I have people in the in the arena of the dispatch that like me and know me. And I certainly have those that hate me. And that also goes for places like the Bulwark and um, and, and places like Breitbart and places like, you know, Daily Caller as well. And so I see basically just a bunch of wolves fending for themselves. And I, and I still think that everything is still up in the air. And I think it's going to take probably the next election to really find out where that all settles. Is, is Trump going to run? And if he runs, do do people like the Federalist fall in line? And do people like Breitbart just fall in line? Or people just go, enough of this shit. We're tired of this. And it, an interesting thing that happened this week was Jared Kushner was on Fox News, and this clip went around when he was asked about DeSantis' stunt with migrants, and Kushner broke out the kind of progressive politician media soundbite, which was, you know, I, you have to be careful with these stunts. These are people, and you have to be not using them as pawns. And I saw a lot of people who were strong Trump loyalists go, I'm not going down this road. This is a guy who's going to be a Trump advisor. 
in 2024. And this was, this to me was the strongest sense I got that people who are aboard the Trump train or whatever you want to call it are basically like, we're off, we're getting off of this because we actually liked what DeSantis did. And this is a different form. This isn't Trumpism. It's a different form of conservatism, which I've talked about. So then the only question becomes, where do those people who broke off from Trump, should he not be the nominee and should he not even run? We heard that rumor from Megyn Kelly today. Where do they land? Do they land on, yes, DeSantis is good enough for us to prevent a Kamala Harris administration or a Pete Buttigieg administration? Or do they land on never DeSantis because he's just like Trump? And so you have all of these pieces, you have all of these pieces up in the air, and I'll, I'll kind of let you chime in here. You have all of these pieces up in the air, and right now, in my opinion, nobody has any idea where to land. You do have people like William Sooners, like, no more Republicans, period. Okay, well, that's not going to happen. That's just plainly not feasible. If you don't want – Kevin Williamson, I don't think, votes for, for them anyway. So it's kind of like you can use your platform to say no more Republicans. Well, that platform is already kind of eaten up by the bulwark. So you have now – what my kind of my thing was when the dispatch launched that I said that I hope didn't happen, which is you're essentially going to have the dispatch and the bulwark fighting over the same dog bone. Okay. If we're comparing everyone to wolves and I don't know how sustainable that is. I do have a problem uh, with people like at the dispatch referring to themselves as a pirate ship. When you have corporate media deals from NBC and MSNBC and CNN, it doesn't work that way. You're not the pirates. You're you're the Queen Mary here, okay? And so, I, again, I don't have personal opinions. I, I generally don't have personal opinions when people go to write for outlets. People have bills to pay. People have families to feed. Um, I do have personal opinions when people swap out their values. And I talked about this today on the podcast. Kimberly Ross had a great piece at the Washington Examiner. And Kimberly Ross is certainly no fan of Trump, and she's certainly no fan of, of that wing of the party as she's made herself known. And she said today, you're basically not a conservative if you still think that someone like Joe Biden is still an option. And that's basically where I land. Um, so I don't really fault people for going to places. I didn't fault Kevin Williamson for going to the Atlantic. I thought that that was a pretty brave hire by Jeffrey Goldberg, and he instantly caved on it. I do think what's interesting is how Kevin Williamson was shunned out of the Atlantic for his pro-life views when someone like David French is wildly accepted there despite his pro-life views. I think that's something that's worth examining, and that's not personal on David. It's not personal on Kevin. And so I get the white-hot rage this stuff kind of generates in people, and I just I have to say it just doesn't do that for me because I'm not in this – for those kinds of relationships, those things come and go. Uh, I, I'm in this as a writer. I'm in this in to kind of listen to people. I'm in this for a lot of reasons that a lot of people who went to the bulwark and the dispatch are not in it anymore. And that's something that I try to keep in mind as I record my little podcast and I host these little call-ins. So that's kind of a long diatribe. Um, I don't know if that answers what you want, but again, I, I don't, I don't know if there's a personal falling out there. I don't think that there is. Um, I, I admire both Ken and Charlie greatly for different reasons. Um, I, again, if there's bad blood there, you're going to have to talk to those guys. But these, the personal squabbles of people from National Review to Weekly Standard to Bulwark to Washington Examiner, all this completely disinterests me more than you can even imagine. Got it. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I understand, and I'm. I think I'm with you on all of that. I and I admire them. I don't know them 
as you do, but I admire their work uh, a lot. I guess I'll, I know that uh, you've got a lot of people up. I will just in the in the next 24 seconds just say I'm with you um, entirely when it comes to you know understanding why people would go from outlet to outlet if, if that's where the money is and where an opportunity is. But like you, I cannot sympathize with people who uh, allow their values to become corrupted. I think uh, I think it's fine if you change your position, but I think if you are a writer or a fundit or whatever, you owe your audience a crystal clear explanation of why that happened. Agreed. And I think that that's where the problem comes in with a lot of people at Dispatch and the Bulwark. It's not that it's not like you changed positions. Okay, we we understand you don't like the direction of the Republican Party under Donald Trump. That's that's fair. We all we all understand you don't like that. But when you have someone like Bill Kristol, who wrote an op-ed for the Washington Examiner titled Roe v. Wade Must Go 10 years ago, and now all of a sudden you're condemning a conservative majority Supreme Court for doing it, you owe your, you owe your audience why you changed your position. Um, if you're Jennifer Rubin, and I never – I guess my thing is I never put great stock in these people in the first place because I'm on the younger side. Um, you owe your audience an explanation as to why you shifted. And if you just go Donald Trump, okay, I guess that's, I guess that is, I guess that suffices, but that doesn't change the fact. One thing I always think about is Ron DeSantis is the prototypical politician that Rick Wilson has been dreaming of his entire life. His entire life would come along in Florida or nationally. And now basically he's beholden to donors and his MSNBC audience and busy gargling Al Sharpton's balls on MSNBC to basically say something like that. And so I look at it and I just say, it's fine if you change your positions. People do it all the time. David Brock used to be a conservative. Um, but I think if you are someone in the public arena who has a documented history of what you've written and what you've said on television and what you've said on YouTube appearances or what you said on call-in, for example... You owe your audience an explanation as to why you changed your position. And the reason a lot of them don't give you that is because it 100% has to do with who is paying them, especially when it comes down to the bulwark. Not all of them, but most of them. When Pierre Odemeyer is funding your website, you can't come out and go, oh, you know, I kind of think Ron DeSantis had a decent point about that immigration stunt. You know, when I was rousing the Tea Party, I suggested something myself, Charlie Sykes. Um, I think of all the obnoxious people who have done this. I think Charlie Sykes is the worst example. This is a guy who put Sheriff Clark. He made Sheriff Clark a national name. The sheriff in Wisconsin, who then was investigated for abusing prisoners, basically waterboarding prisoners. He made him a national name. He made him a national Tea Party figure. He had him on a show every fucking week. And then he turns around a year ago and calls David Clark a proud boy. And I sit here and I go, how did this happen? How how did David Clark rise to such prominence? And how does Charlie Sykes get to just wash his fucking hands of it? Um, I said that I would I would love to read a book. I don't want to be the person to write one, but I would love to read a book on every single 90s conservative author who is now just going, oh, oops, whether it's Charlie Sykes or it's George Will or it's Jonah Goldberg or it's Mona Sharan or it's Bill Kristol or it's David Frum or it's Tom Nichols. These, these guys were a brain trust of the GOP for 15, 20 years. And then, you know, and then also you have the Lincoln dudes. You have Wilson, you have Stuart Stevens, you have Steve Schmidt, and you have these guys. And part of it, I think, is they just didn't like Trump. Part of it is they Trump 
hijack the bus that they were driving and then just kick them off of it, as we saw with Steve Schmidt wanting a job from Trump. Um, so I would really love to read that book on all of these guys who made so many careers uh, off of rousing the rabble and, and starting the Tea Party and Sarah Palin with Steve with Steve Schmidt's VP pick, which you could argue is what got all of this rolling. You could argue the way the media reacted to Sarah Palin as a viable threat to Barack Obama. You could argue is what started kind of the whole road Trumpism. It was a long road. And so I just I look at this and I say, if you're going to change your values, great. People do it all the time. There's things I've changed on. Um, but I think you owe your audience an explanation as to why you've done it. Um, people came around and voted. People who didn't vote for Trump in 2016 voted for him in 2020. Um, I think you owe your audience an explanation for why you did that. If Trump runs in 2024, let's say I decide to vote for him, I think I would owe you an explanation as to why that's going to happen. I can tell you unequivocally right now I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump. No, I'm, well, I'm not either. I didn't vote for him, uh, you know, the first two times. I have no intention of voting for him. But I, I couldn't vote for anyone on the left either. I, I, I'm politically homeless now, uh, as a lot of people you, are. You owe, right, you, a lot you of people owe your vote to, to yep. nobody. And this is something those people do not understand. Agreed. You do not owe your vote to somebody. Your vote is yours. It's yours to not use. It's yours to write in whom you want. Um, you can write in fucking She-Hulk. Who gives a I wrote. I, I read. You're going to laugh. I've written. I wrote in uh, on two occasions. Gold of my year, uh, a dark horse because a not in, in, you know an American candidate and also be dead. Uh, yeah, but, uh, it's yours to do whatever you want. With. And anyone who tries to shame you with that, you know, you, you can basically just tell them to get fucked and walk away. It's yours to do whatever you want with. It's yours to not use. That that's the right you have. That's the right given to you by our founders. Is it's not yours to do to do what somebody else tells you to do. And that's why I don't care about newspaper endorsements, for example. If you make your vote based on a newspaper endorsement, you just need to put a gun in your mouth and not bother the rest <laughs> of us. So right. again, I, I hope, yeah, you can, you can jump off if you want, but I, I hope a lot of this clears up my stance on, you know, something interesting. I'll, I'll tell you two more anecdotes. Um, I said, I said this one on my podcast and people, I don't make a secret of going after people at dispatch or bulwark or stuff because I do see hypocrisies when you decide to flame out of Fox news because you don't like Tucker Carlson's election 2016 stance. Fine. Great. Do that. Say, I can't do this anymore. But then don't three weeks later, go land at NBC as, as you're sitting there listening to joy Reid yap your ear off. Okay. You don't get to do that. In my opinion. Um, I had a, uh, I told you that I had a writer contact me from an outlet uh, who wanted me to, wanted to do a profile and do a, do a story on my tweets and my beef with Bulwark and Dispatch. And I flat out said no, I said, no comment, because I know what they're trying to do here. They're trying to basically, there's nothing our media loves more than conservatives who bash other conservatives in the media to make them all look bad. And that is not my goal. Whatever disagreements I have with those people, that is, I'm still not going to be your fucking tool to drive a nail into a board to, to make that worse. That's not what I'm doing this for. And as far as like going to different outlets, um, I mentioned twice that during the course of 2018, 2016, I had two progressive outlets approach me about writing for them. And, uh, I, I won't say who, I won't say who at those outlets approached me, but one was the Huff Post, and one was Rolling Stone. And I laughed and I basically said, yeah, let's do this. I'm a hunt. I, if this ruins your career and it ruins mine, let's hundred percent do this. 
And they all, they both kind of died when I told them that I'm not here to attack people who are pro-Trump. That's not what I'm here for. I, I'll attack Trump when it's warranted. I'll attack Republicans when it's warranted. Um, but I'm not going to be an attack dog for Trump. And I thought that was funny because I would have loved to have written for Rolling Stone, partially because that was when rate, it was sort of kind of right after the Sabrina Erdelay rape hoax. And the thing that I said is I'm, I'm like, this is going to make every single person mad. It's going to make everybody who's a traditionalist on the right mad. It's going to make everybody on the left mad. And I kind of said that about HuffPost either. And both of those fell through when I just was honest with them. I said, I'm not going to be your attack dog to make the political right look bad. The political right has its problems and it has some very deeply entrenched problems. Um, those aren't going to go away by me appearing on MSNBC. Uh, you're, I'm not, and I'm not going to allow myself to kind of be used that way. So it's, it's one of the reasons I'll never be on Morning Joe because my first appearance on Morning Joe and you can, if it happens, you can mark, is I'm going to look right at Joe fucking Scarborough. I'm going to say, hey, did you know that during the 2016 election, you gave Trump 41 interviews from the time he came down to the escalator, from the time that he uh, accepted the nomination, 10 of which were phone interviews, which is unprecedented. And by the way, would you like to explain to your audience why you were a member at Mar-a-Lago for years and then suddenly just turned on him magically? And that would be the last time you will see my face on Morning Joe. So it is possible if, if you don't just care about influence and money, it is possible. And there are a lot of good people on the right who believe this and are kind of just doing their thing. Um, but it is possible to hold fast to a lot of this stuff if, um, if you believe in what you're doing. Now, who knows? Maybe down the road, I might just fucking sell my podcast to, I don't know, Sirius. And then you're all screwed and I won't do this anymore. Um, but for now, like I said, it is possible to resist these kinds of uh, dark forces in our media. And I also think that that's what makes what I do sort of so potent is, again, I would rather spend, you know, an hour on my Friday night talking to you guys and getting a feel for the audience, because that's largely what led to Donald Trump is conservative punditry from all aspects, Weekly Standard, National Review to a certain extent, uh, Breitbart, and they lost they lost touch with their audiences. And, you know, I, I think that that's very important. It's one of the biggest reasons why I do this. So um, I, I hope that that kind of answers it up. But like I said, um, whether it's whether it's David from wherever you are, I still don't know where you live, or if it's somebody from Vanity Fair, you're not going to get me to comment on personal squabbles to do with anybody in the conservative media sphere or whatever like that. There's, there's people I respect. There's people I don't respect. Uh, there's things that I know. There's things I don't know. Um, but all of that mostly disinterests me, like I said, just to reiterate. Gotcha. All right. Great work, sir. Uh, hope to talk to you again. Thanks, David. That's a fun beginning. We can just keep going off of that one. Uh, Kathy, you're up. Uh, feel free to. Uh, I think Kathy's a newbie, uh, which is great. Oh, she did. She unmuted her microphone. Uh, Kathy, how are you? What are we what are we cracking open on this Friday night? Well, we're going to crack open. Me taking seriously your AMA. Just say a skull. <laughs> well, you don't have to. Too. You don't have to tell us like. what kind of skull. But. <laughs> um, it's Friday, and I was kind of done with politics personally. But I've, <laughs> um, no, you weren't. <laughs> well, we're never done with that, are we? But I was thinking about something um, that you mentioned on a podcast a long time ago. And I had a chance to um, 
check off a bucket list item. I went to Colorado last month. I got to go to a concert at Red Rocks. And who I saw was Train. And it made me Uh-oh. think about, yep, yep. It made me remember the story <laughs> that you told about your run-in with Pat Moynihan. And yeah. I don't, let me just say, I don't love Train as much as I used to. I can take them or leave them. Um, and I'm just so curious. I think it's Friday. I brought some things from the dispensary back with me. There and, you go. Um, I'm ready for some gossip. Okay. What kind of, what kind are you, you want me to refresh the story of train or you want more gossip or what kind of gossip? Would you like? <laughs> I, well, I remember you saying about a run in you had with Pat Moynihan of train, or maybe you just said train. I don't know. I'm so, assuming Pat Moynihan. So I used to, for, for those who don't know, I used to work in hotel, like in my early, like late teens, early twenties. It was my job that I was paying through to get through college, whatever. Uh, and I worked at a four star hotel in downtown Denver called the hotel Monaco and hotel Monaco's were always around. They were Kimden hotels, whatever. Um, I'd worked on a couple, but I, I got a uh, guest services bellman job at the hotel Monaco, which at the time was like next to the Brown palace in Denver. And what I didn't know when they hired me is the Hotel Monaco got all of the bands and entertainers that came through Denver, all of them. So <laughs> speaking of like gossip, I don't spread. If I were to really go back and write a book, I could write a book on all of the famous people I met and all my little experiences that I had with them. Do it. Um well, no, I'm trying to think. I'm trying. I, I won't go into names, but it, so this is a. I'll give you time frames, and I'll let you kind of try to guess. I'll get to train in a second, because because what Kathy's talking about is train was maybe the worst fucking guess that I had ever had in the two years that I worked at that job, and it wasn't even uh, sports teams came through. Uh, the color at the time, the color Avalanche would stay in that hotel during home games, and um, we got to see the Stanley Cup. They won it that year. So sports teams would come through. Um, so I got to see all of these little interesting things. And I was never really a starstruck person. And maybe my experience as an hotel have led me to be able to tell somebody like, I don't know, Jessica Chastain to go fuck herself on Twitter. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, so this is roughly about 2000, 2001 time. And I'd left the job just uh, prior to when 9-11 happened. Um, which was the perfect time to get out of the service industry. Um, but I had done things. Uh, there was one there was one vocalist for an alternative indie band that had me get them a call girl. And these are things you had to just know as a bellman. And you got tipped very, very well if you came through. Um, I had a two and a half hour conversation with John Travolta at like two in the morning. And no... There was no masseuses. No, I was not naked. Was he trying um, to convert you to Scientology? No, no, he was in town for Comic-Con to promote Battlefield Earth. And so the overnight guy ended up calling in sick. And so I knew he was coming in. And at the time I was, a, I was in film school and I was doing writing. So I was like, oh, hey, you know, whatever. And he was just fresh off face or Pulp Fiction and these films. And he was, he was doing a promo for Battlefield Earth, which is when it all went downhill. Um, but he had he came in at like two in the morning. He had a whole pe- group of people with him. His people had me put his. He brought in his own sheets, which was weird. And then at <laughs> like three weird. at three in the morning, I guess his cable wasn't working, so I had to go up and try to 
fix it, which I couldn't really do because of the satellite. And I ended up just saying something on my way out of the room. I said something about like what a great influence Tarantino and Pulp Fiction had on me. And I love the character. And he said, you know, what did you like about it? And that I was in his hotel room. I was leaning against the wall while he was kind of just chilling in bed. But I had a, basically a two-hour conversation with him. Wow. And then he uh, he tipped me pretty well the next morning, left an envelope for me, just said regards. And he said J.T. Smith, which was his alias. Um, so I, I've had some experiences. I got to pluck Angus's guitar from ACDC. That was a pretty fun one. So they came in, and, I, and he had a whole luggage rack full of stuff. And I got to be the one to take that up. And on sitting on top of it was his guitar. So, <laughs> so it was about a six floor ride in the elevator. And so I hit one and the doors closed and I just go, okay. And I popped open the guitar case and just kind of went, dink, 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 closed it. And I went, okay. Um, so I've, I've had, a, I have a number of stories like that. Um, I almost, I um, just because I hated their fucking music and I hated the time, I hated the trend at the time. Uh, one of the guys from InSync wanted to go to Cherry Creek Mall, which was a few miles from the hotel. And I almost sent him to Boulder out of pure spite. <laughs> um, I, so I never did anything really like that. There was a couple times where we got stiffed and there was one band, and I won't say who, where me and two other bellmen got stiffed on tips or portages. And we basically cleaned out their mini bars and we put them into FedEx boxes. And then threw them in the dumpster. So they got basically a $500 minibar charge. I'm telling you folks, treat your service industry people well, okay? You can either tip them 5 or 20 bucks, or you can pay for it later. That's it. So uh, Train... I agree with that. Train was one of these groups who just came in and they didn't tip anybody. They were demanding. So the Hotel Monaco had a wine hour for free wine hour. And they came down and Monaghan had like this, he dresses like, he, like you see them dress, like, you know, mm -hmm. kind of flared jeans and a black shirt. And he had a, like a, like a dark maroon leather jacket. And I'm just standing there for guests, like in the lobby, you, you kind of post yourself and he just walks up and he hands me like his leather jacket. And he goes, Hey, can you just hmm. hold this for me? <laughs> wow. And I kind of just look at him like. I can put it in the closet. He goes, no, just hold on to it for me. I'm just going to be a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he takes it off and he just puts it on my arm. That's not cool. Literally, I literally just like drape, I, I just drape it over the bell cart outside on the concrete. And I'm like, if this thing blows away, it, it blows away, whatever. Um, so they did everything from that to just demands to not tipping anybody. This wasn't just like a me. It was like everyone in the hotel was like, get these fucking guys out of here. Like, who, who do you think you guys are? Like the best soy latte you've ever had is me. What kind of fucking lyric is that even in the first place for you to be acting this way? I'm like last week I helped Pete Townsend up to his hotel room and that was pretty great. And you're a fucking prick. Um, and so one of the things you also learn is a lot at the time, a lot of those older acts, which they are now, this is like 20, mm -hmm. 22 years ago, yeah. a lot of the older acts were the best people. And a lot of the flash in the pan acts were the worst people, like Fred Durst, Matchbox 20. Rob Thomas was okay. Mm -hmm. And um, Train, the 311 was another group of fucking pricks. Um, and so it really, it, it gives you an eye into who these people are, how they behave, um, 
And it kind of gives you one of these kind of crash courses in celebrity and fame and what's important and what's mm. not and who learns from it and who doesn't. Um, I'd also met Tom Hanks stayed there and he was doing his, he was doing a thing for Castaway. I don't know what he was in Denver for. And I was in the elevator with him and Rita Wilson. And I just asked, you know, you, you try to, you try not to be a dick, but you try to crack the ice a little bit. And I said, um, Tom, what have you been doing with yourself since bosom buddies? Like what's going on? <laughs> and he kind of laughed and he, it, it's funny. The other thing you learn about is the mannerisms. Like John Travolta always does these weird things with his hands, like almost like DeSantis or Trump. And he does those in real life. And then Hanks does this kind of thing. He goes, oh, you know, I've been trying to keep busy. I got a couple of Oscars, you know. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so you try to break the ice, but you try to be unimposing. But, um, yeah, as far as bands go, you're bringing up some trauma with Train. Um, <laughs> Sorry. And, and, uh, and some are great. Some would give you tickets to their shows. And, you know, uh, one of the best people was Fatboy Slim was great to everyone uh would talk would talk to people he gave everyone in the front house tickets to go see a show and um that was election night uh i went saw fat boy slim on election night of george bush and al gore and it's funny because you're kind of watching on the screen and they had the counter and that was when people were like do we have a president like what's going on here and so it's one of those things where you do get memories from. And, and I could have gone back and written a book and said, okay, here are the celebrities that did this and here's the ones like that. Um, but it does prepare you a great deal. And as I've always said, Washington, D.C. is Hollywood for ugly people. Uh, I do think that kind of experience prepares you a great deal for dealing with these exact kind of people. Um, and, and again, you, you learn who is genuine. You learn who isn't. And that goes for media as well. And you, and you learn you know, who's doing this and who doesn't care and who will snub you for a handshake when you see them in person and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it drills something into you to, you know, never, never forget that part of your audience. So no, I will, if I ever see anyone at a conference or whatever, if I ever decide to do those, I'm not going to make you hold my leather jacket. I promise. <laughs> well, we also got to see Jewel. She was there as well. And so that Jewel was, Jewel was nice. Um, a little standoffish, but she also had like weird anxiety. Yeah, I think um, she's an introvert, you know, by yeah. nature, probably. So, and some of them you barely saw. Some of them you, some of them you just heard about. And some of them you didn't see at all. Um, sports teams, basketball players were the were the biggest assholes. Hockey players were the best. Uh, whatever <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> well, thanks, so, uh, Stephen. I appreciate you going into that. Yeah, it, that yeah, it's, fun. Just a, it's a fun personal. It's one of those fun things. So that's you recalled it on. So be careful. And I'm not a newbie. I've been following you for a hundred years, and yeah. I've listened to all of them, just not necessarily when they're actually happening and yeah. the podcast as well. So love you. Take, take care of what you picked up from the dispensary. Don't Absolutely. overdo it. So uh, just, just be careful with that stuff. Oh yeah. All right, Kathy. Take care. <laughs> Great. See, this is fun. We said open topic and here we are. Vanessa, what did we crack open tonight? I have a soda pop tonight because I actually have a double header of drinking a Tomorrow soda is pop. Sunday. Yeah. So now we have to get into the bait of is this soda or is it pop? Because you're where? You're Missouri, right? I, so I call it soda. And okay. sometimes I call it soda pop, but I do not call it pop okay. in general. And I do not call it Coke because that is just wrong. Okay. Because this yeah. is opening up an entire new debate if we get into this. No, I don't want to debate soda with you. That's okay. <laughs> I, I call it, I think it's just Coke because I don't really do anything else. You call all soda Coke? 
I don't really drink any other soda. I just, I mainly do fizzy water and once in a while I'll do like a, a Coke zero, um, if, if I feel like a treat, but that's it. Same, but I'm saying, do you, if you want a soda, do you specifically ask for Coke by name or do you just refer to all soda as Coke? I'll just say, I'll just ask if you have Diet Coke or Coke Zero. If they say Diet Pepsi, I say, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, there's some people that call all soda Coke and it's, it's wrong. I think, (laughs) I don't know how many people saw the, the movie Eyes of Tammy Faye, the one Jessica Chastain won an Oscar for, but there's a scene between her and Andrew Garfield where he's Jim, he's, he's Jim Baker in this movie. And I can't tell if his performance is brilliant or bad because <laughs> there's a scene in it where he's fighting with her for people who haven't seen it. And he's like, and I'm tired of you using all of my money and drinking the soda pop. And I just <laughs> can't decide if that performance is, is just cringeworthy or if it's like, I don't know, he's, he's on another level here. So that's just what that reminded me of. Yeah, no, I, I have an Oktoberfest to go to tomorrow. Oh. And, yeah, and then a winery. So we're hydrating tonight. Yes. Well, and I, I had pizza for supper, and when I have pizza, I don't drink it with anything except soda or beer. But since I'm having beer tomorrow, I had a soda tonight. Okay. So so yeah. what? So now that we got the, the soda pop debate out of the way, what, what what's going on? What are we here for? So I was going to talk about the gap tooth herpes blister that is Stacey Abrams, who won't go away. Um, and I know you were talking about, uh, I think, I don't remember if someone had commented or, and you read it on the podcast or if I saw it on Twitter, but someone had said the reason that Democrats, pro-choice Democrats get away with this is because it's like a, a punishment to the voters and you should have done this and that. Yeah, I think I think that was Samuel last night who basically said, yeah, the reason why people like Democrats never go away, like Al Gore doesn't go away and Hillary Clinton doesn't go away and Stacey Abrams doesn't go away. And Obama's kind of just doing his own thing, kind of. But Obama doesn't go away is and Obama was a winner, though. So I guess that that doesn't really track. But if you were a losing candidate, if you're if you're a Democrat politician, who's just lost races like Beto, Al Gore, Hillary, you still command a tremendous amount of respect and nobility in our media and in our culture. And I do think it was Samuel who noted that it's because it's the media's way of telling the public you're stupid and you're just dumb and you you don't see in Hillary what we see in her. And and that's the primary reason why they're, they continue to try and shove her down our throats. Yeah. And um, I was just thinking, I mean, I agree with you that that the, the, dem- the pro-choice Democrats, at least the politicians, I don't think the voters necessarily feel exactly the same way they do, but they've anointed themselves as the party of science and they fling it in your face anytime they want to talk about anything from COVID to climate change to whatever. But then they ignore, like you said, medical technology advances and fetal development. Um, and I right. think they, other- they, ignore the, they ignore the science that they don't like, or they make right. their political arguments look bad. Right. And I think I think part of the reason that they do that and, and what made me think about this was um, the movie Men. I don't know if you saw it. It came out this year. Yeah. Totally weird movie. And the yep. scene I'm the scene I'm talking, there's a line in that movie that stuck in my head. And the scene where they say the line has nothing to do with anything that I'm talking about. But there's a, a scene where the main character is talking to like a reverend at a church and he says, would you prefer things to be comfortable or would you prefer them to be true? 
And I think for a lot of Democrat politicians that are pro-choice, they would prefer things to be comfortable. They would rather ignore the truth that is a heartbeat at six weeks or the truth that is the second the sperm meets the egg, that is when that baby's unique DNA starts to be made. It's completely unique. You know, it's a human being. They would rather ignore all that because it's easier for them to look at this as just some blob of cells or whatever, instead of acknowledging that it is a distinct person with their own livelihood. Yeah, I think what will be interesting is to ask them, and they're very good at not answering questions, which is which is why they and the people who are tasked with answering them questions agree with them, which is why they never get challenged on any of this stuff. Is what do you what do you think is a more viable science, uh, where human life begins, or gender reassignment surgery actually makes you the opposite sex? I'd love to hear them answer that question because I, I do think you're right in the sense of this is our worldview this is what we believe and nothing and nothing you say or no, no amount of evidence that I see is going to change my mind from this and it's it's why they they literally claim the mantle of the party of science 100% because of climate change that's it and even in climate change there's natural phenomena warming on the on the west coast uh, there's things that, that blow through Canada called a Chinook that creates warm weather patterns. Um, we see how the, the earth warms naturally here and there. And that's not to say that mankind doesn't, doesn't create conditions that warm the earth up, but it ain't your fucking SUV doing it. Okay. Um, and so I, I do agree in that sense that it's more about we're comfortable in this little place and whatever you say or whatever you do doesn't it's not going to affect us and on a larger scale with that you saw the reaction at Martha's Vineyard when suddenly there was an influx of 50 poor brown people these are people who always you know they preach you know tolerance and no no human is illegal and we love immigrants immigrants are welcome here they always did like the the woman with the hijab with the american flag that said no every human welcome here etc and then you actually say okay welcome these people. And within a day, they had the National Guard escorting them away. They didn't want to be exposed to um, the conditions and the policy or, and, and the conditions of their own policies and their own beliefs. And that very much is where progressivism is on an elite scale right now. I, if there is like a populist progressivism, and there's a few people I follow on Twitter who I think ascribe to it, I don't know what it is right now. Um, it pretty much is all, it's somebody like Mark's Bay AOC, who, you know, lives in the fucking Navy yard, drives a Tesla and owns a French bulldog. She is the she is the very definition of someone who is uh, an elite progressive, uh, but who gets on Instagram and wears a T-shirt. and She has a dying plant behind her. And so there I would agree with that. It's, it's more about, you know, we're comfortable with this and no amount of facts or science or whatever is going to get in the way if it gets in the way of what we believe or what we vote for. We'll go Ian, Craig, Julia. This has been fun and loose, so uh, time's flying, but we'll wrap up with that. Ian, go ahead. Hey, Stephen. So uh, since this isn't Ask Me Anything, I figured this is uh, as good a time as any to ask what your thoughts are on the fact that 
uh, what Verid Mata has been talking about for basically the last calendar year about how the Senate polling has been wrong for like a decade in battleground states and no one seems to care that they're providing garbage polls. I mean, Nate Silver came out and said that his methodology was including two polls from a scam pack. Like it's, they just don't seem to give a shit, but apparently there's money and not giving a shit about having correct polls. So I was just wondering what your thoughts on that were. Uh, I think what's interesting is every chance they're given to correct polling every election, they come up with an excuse about why they were actually right and why it doesn't need to be corrected. 2016 was a big indicator when Trump rolls over Hillary in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and uh, a little bit of Ohio and Wisconsin. That's How did you guys miss that? Um, that was a big one because I don't think anybody had him winning Wisconsin anywhere. I, you might have to go back. There might have been some, you know, Internet pollster who was digging into the numbers and, be, you know, hey, I have this. He's going to fucking win Wisconsin. You better wake up. Um, and then, of course, last election. When the GOP basically swept all the Senate races, uh, I think they went 0 for 8 or 0 for 9, somewhere along those lines where they had Collins losing, they had Graham losing, I think they had Murkowski losing. Um, they had a few of those where they just completely missed the mark by huge points. And as I noted, Trump shenanigans overshadowed a lot of that. And I think they used that. I think they were just like, we're not going to examine this and we're, we're going to talk about uh, the big lie, the big lie, yeah. And they didn't examine what happened in border communities. Uh, Democrats basically said this was all misinformation. But if you look at the, the, the amount of voters that swung in some of those places, it was undeniable that it's a trend. It's not, it's not that it was an anomaly. It was been going up and up and up and up. And then we saw with Maya Flores, uh, oops, it just flipped. And so th this is one of the reasons I don't comment a lot on polling, because I haven't seen a lot of methodology that was changed from the last two elections where they got it not just a little bit wrong. It wasn't just they got things here and there wrong or they got percentages wrong or whatever, they blew it big time, blew it to the point of where you had the entire Javits Center in tears wondering how the hell did this happen? And so I know we just saw the thing with Trafalgar uh, in National Review where he's basically saying you guys are doing this all over again. Um, you're you're mispolling, you're under, you're under polling, you're skewing towards Dems because largely because there is a silent conservative GOP majority who isn't talking to you and they don't want to talk to you. So when they call, it's either they hang up or they just lie to you or whatever. And I do think that that is a trend that is real. Um, and until a lot of those people, I guess, get it right, uh, then I guess I just look at it and I just, I, for the most part, ignore them. I do see people like what Virat is saying. There are people I listen to. Uh, Decision Desk is good. And I, and I know a lot of people who work at Decision Desk that I listen to and stuff like that. Um, I, as, as far along the lines of there's money to be made in fake polling, that's something that's interesting to me. Um, and that's something that's worth exploring is basically, are you, again, rousing the rabble in different ways that say Tucker Carlson's doing it? Um, are you doing it? One of the things I've always thought is they, they very much basically do it on purpose. They skew Democrat on purpose to suppress conservative voting. You see this on Twitter every single day where there's a poll that has 
uh, I saw one today that has Charlie Crist up plus three on DeSantis. And in no way does anybody believe that that's a reality. But they do it, one, I think, to generate enthusiasm and to suppress uh, people from voting. They just, you know, and what stops them from doing it? Nothing. And so um, they've they've hugely missed on a few elections and not so much 2018, but they did it in 2016. They did it in 2020. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see this. I'm I'm of the mind that nothing will really shock me uh, this election. It won't shock me if. Oz beats Fetterman or if Masters beats Kelly or um, in Nevada is now one they're talking about. It won't shock me if Herschel Walker beats Warnock. And you can definitely see another night where, you know, Steve Kornacki's on MSNBC going, I, I don't know. I, this one caught me off guard. And again, until they this this has a lot to do as well as with political bias. And until you guys face your own biases and your own agendas, it's just going to keep getting worse. And it's one of the worst things our media does is face their own biases. We know that they don't. Brian Stelter is a perfect example of this and he lost his job. So it won't shock me because they haven't re-examined their flawed policies. They've always found an excuse for them. They haven't re-examined how they got it wrong. Then yeah, they're probably going to keep getting it wrong. And so again, uh, nothing right now, as far as I think the election's 46 days, nothing right now is going to shock me about how it happens. I think the GOP could win the Senate by two to three seats. I think they could lose it by one or two. I do think they're going to take the House. And the way I look at somebody like me, who doesn't really dig into polling and numbers, that's good enough for me. I am happy with stagnation and gridlock. Yeah, the uh, something else worth tracking is just, uh, as I'm sure you're well aware, the stock market took a tumble today and the last yep. couple of days after the announcement by the Federal Reserve that they were going to increase the Fed funds rate by another 75 basis points. And I looked ahead to see when their next meeting is and the next announcement on an increase to the Fed funds rate will be six days before the midterms. So yeah, this, especially today, this feels like a slow motion train wreck the Biden administration can't avoid. And they know that it's coming. So the question becomes, how do they pass it off? How do they brace for it? How do they get people to ignore it? I don't know. Maybe that's when they just say, you need to indict Trump. <laughs> like, that's when you have to do it right now. Um, yep. but, but it does, it definitely, when you, when you read the indicators and, it, and people I read today, it, it, you're, yeah, it's coming in the fall. It's going to happen in the next month and a half. And it feels like it's just something that's, it, it, it's going to hit this administration. It's going to hit us, certainly. And it's going to hit exactly at the ill time that the Biden administration and uh, Democrats and our media don't want it to. And so it definitely looks and feels that way. Yeah. And I just one last thing is I came into this year, like before the candidate, just looking generic R, generic D, expecting with the way things were going with Biden's approval rating, that it was going to be like a 55 45 split in the Senate, obviously you can't just have generic D, generic R. And so now with the candidates out there, personally, I'm expecting it to be 53, 47, but would not be the least bit surprised if Masters uh, came out and managed to surprise people or if Oz managed to do it, or honestly, uh, Bennett hasn't been looking quite as strong as people expected in Colorado. And then some Republicans have 
had some pipe dreams about Washington and Oregon, like the gubernatorial races and some of the Senate races. I think that's a bit far-fetched, but that's that's about as good as I could possibly imagine. Like, if that starts happening, the panic button will be broken. It's been hit so hard uh, on November 8th. So... Yeah, I saw, I saw, and I forgot when I was glancing over stuff today, uh, looking at stuff. <clears throat> there was there was an indicator up that line that basically said if this happens, if if, and that's why you're seeing people like Warren and whatever go after the Fed for raising interest rates or whatever. If this happens, it's going to be unimaginable. Like it's going to make 2014, which was the largest swing of congressional seats since World War II. It's going to just it's going to dwarf that, and you know, not even federally, but at a state level, like you talk about, you're going to see governorships swing ways that you can't even believe. Um, I saw one that said, uh, Halkel is in trouble in New York. And that's, again, I don't know what to believe. A lot of this stuff makes me curious. I don't jump in. I go, here we go. We're going to get New York. Um, but if people are whispering that, then you kind of look at this and you go, okay, uh, is Tudor Dixon going to oust uh, Whitmer in Michigan is Lee Zeldin actually going to win the governorship of New York and the way things trend again in every election there is one race that's like that we saw it with you know Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was that race that one year so if things again if things keep trending this way as I said and, and, I, and I'll just break out the old cliche people at Bulwark and people at CNN and people at MSNBC they always warn that you know pieces are being moved to where Trump can steal the next election and should he run. And that's, you know, all they have to do is get the AGs in place to not certify. And I just shake my head and I go, guys, if Biden keeps going this way, he's not going to have to steal anything. He's going to win 38 to 40 states and there's nothing, nothing you can do will stop that. And so it's up to Biden. And if, again, if you want to keep going down this road of everything's great and you know what, we, we save the planet with the Inflation Reduction Act. And then today he's had, he has Elton John singing Rocket Man at the White House when, when people just, again, the Dow Jones closed at its lowest point of the year. Good luck, guys. <laughs> it's it's so, just the, it's the meme of the dog sitting in the room on fire. Just saying, yeah, I'm sure yeah, this is it, fine. It, re- it really is. And you know what? The Republicans have been here too. So it's not like, you know, I think the worst one I saw was the Bush 06 was just, you know, Pelosi walking with the giant fucking gavel, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just like, man, and that's just how it swings. But again, you look at history and you just you, all you have to do is look at history for Joe Biden, who doesn't really have a base of support. OK, he's under 50 percent and no president who's been underwater heading into a midterm. His party has come out on top. Now, you look at someone like Obama, who, who genuinely had a hardcore base of support and kind of a cult of personality around him. And he just got his ass kicked in 2014, just destroyed. And then you look at someone with Biden who most people are like, "Eh, I guess he's not Trump. (laughs) Um, I just don't I just don't see how it's avoidable at this point. So that that, that's probably a lot of why you don't see me commenting on polls or retweeting polls or anything like that. I think it's inevitable one way or the other. And that's just how I look at it. And if it's if it's inevitable, it doesn't really interest me. All right. Well, thank you for doing this, Stephen. Have a have a good weekend. All right, Ian. Good to hear from you. We get through C- Craig and Julia. Moving along. Craig, you're up. What do we crack tonight? Can you hear me? You're good. Go ahead. Good post hoc beer. Oh yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Um, no, we've been just real fast. Um, we've been going on and on. I think you're our favorite crotch of the old man. The world is burning. But I got one for you. So with everything going on, with the government seemingly coming after anybody who disagrees with them, what do you see kind of in the medium to long term that makes you optimistic? <laughs> like, what do I see that's good? Yeah, or 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 trends, anything like that that you think, hey, the world may be on fire now, but I've got some confidence, optimism in the near future that things may turn around. Or is everything going to hell and all they can do, crack into the cold ones, sit back and watch the world burn? Yeah, I don't like to sell doom. That's not really what I do because there's a lot of, again, when I talk about people who make money off of this kind of stuff, I'm not really interested in, I mean, I can get kind of loud, I can get passionate and whatever on the podcast, but I'm not here to, you know, like I said, go full Levin, you know, yeah, the world's burning, you know, like uh, go full Mark Levin or anything like that. I hate that kind of brand of punditry. Um. As, but as far as like being optimism, I mean, it's hard, especially in politics and media. I mean, to me, optimism is putting an, putting an end to this presidency, like which is the midterms. If you take the House or if you take the Senate or both, that's the end of Joe Biden's presidency. Yeah, yeah he'll get his budgets and he'll, he'll try his executive orders. Uh, but I was stunned that this inflation package got passed. That was... I think I just woke up one day and Manchin was like, we did it. And I was just like, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck is this? Um, that one down the road is going to hurt. And it's going to hurt in ways that we haven't even figured out yet. So that that was that was a pretty low point. I was just like, how, how did this even fucking happen? Like, what's going on here? Um, so I guess I, I look at it and I say, you know, put an end to this dude's president. Now we can barrel towards 2024, which... I know a lot of people, especially people who don't want to deal with it, they look at this and they go, we're in, we're in hell. Like, we're not, we're not actually in 2024. I think it's Jerry Dunleavy from The Examiner. He says, we're like in day 897 of 2016. And, you know, I'm someone who I look forward to elections. I, I look forward to midterms. I look forward to national elections. I look forward to what develops. I look forward to who steps forward and who, you know, in this, I, I, I kind of remove myself from, any kind of feeling of, of numbness from them. And I know that that's unlike a lot of punditry, but part of it is you have, you have to in a way get off on this kind of thing, not like sexually, but you just, you kind of have to be willing to get up and want to do it. So I guess I look at it and I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. Let's see what 2024 happens. Is boomer dad going to run again? And what kind of nightmare is that going to produce and whatever? And I, like I said, I'm, I'm just always somewhere I try to lean into it. Even, even if I think the worst is ahead, <laughs> Um, so as far as like looking ahead, like what's positive, I don't know. I'm looking forward to the new national album. I'm looking forward to the new Yaya Yaz album that comes out next week. Um, and so, uh, yeah, not, not to kind of leave it as an anomaly or leave it mystified. Um, I, I don't believe in rousing around and getting all doom and gloom. Um, but we're, we're in for, we're in for some hard times. I mean, again, what you see with the economy's coming um, with this inflation act that's passed, obviously gas prices, and you look at groceries, we're going to have to go through some kind of a recession to get out of this. And the only positive uh, metric that this administration points to about why we're not in a recession is job growth. And as you just heard kind of from Ian, roughly in the next two to three, four months, that looks like that that's going to all stop. 
you see you already see companies and primarily in like tech and uh, in media and corporate media already laying people off. <clears throat> and so uh, I used to be I used to kind of be in that I was in an industry that they just laid everybody off and then the economy crashed. And so I'm fortunately not in that anymore, but I'm also someone who depends on, you know, subscribers and stuff. So I'm looking at this going, OK, um, so not to be kind of all doom and gloom or not to be just kind of you know, agnostic about it all, but I really am kind of like a try to enjoy the warmth from the flames. And I also know there's people that have a lot more invested in things than I do. So as far as optimism, the good news is, is usually when things get this bad um, and they get, and they'll get worse for the next year or two, uh, usually the pendulum swings the other way. Uh, the, the thing that I learned in 2016 is that pendulum very rarely swings the way that you want it to. And so if you, if you go back to like where I was in my job in you know, in 2015, 2016, uh, there was great like kind of hope that, you know, Republicans, man, they have a younger generation. You guys are going to run a 74 year old woman. And here we have, you know, Marco Rubio, who's young. We have Rand Paul, who's young. And you have Ted Cruz. <laughs> I mean, I could have. Um, you have all of these great young faces and you have Paul Ryan and you have a G and whatever. And then along came Trump and just punched you in the mouth. And that's kind of, <laughs> I think we're all still trying to uh, figure that out. And he's probably going to come along and punch us all in the mouth again. So um, that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm in, I'm at the Harvey Dent two face phase of, if you think that, you know, we're escaping out of this, there's not really an escape from this. So at least that's how I look at it from my perspective. The good news is, is I'll always have work. So uh, I will always be kept busy somehow. So I don't know if that answers your question or as far as optimism, but I, I don't really look at it in terms of optimistic or pessimistic. Uh, I, I look at it in terms of what is and, you know, where can I find, I don't want to say a dark humorous angle in it, but how can I, how can I keep myself interested in all of gestures around of this? And so as long as I'm interested in it, and who knows, if, if Trump gets the nomination again, I may just decide to hang it all up and go be a shepherd. I don't know. I'll, I'll move to Reykjavik or something. Um, so, yeah, I don't really view things as pessimism or optimism. I just view them as, you know, uh, you have to kind of enjoy the fight a little bit. You have to keep wanting to do it. And uh, you still have to have a heart about it. And probably if, you know, if circumstances play out, I, I will probably hang it up. So that's probably the best answer I can give you. What what do you have optimism for, Craig? Not not. Don't make much. this all about um, me. What do you have? Kind of kind of like what you said. I mean, I I always sort of I don't know if if you've heard me say I'm I'm in I'm in the line of work right. I'm I'm in the staff world, and we always like to clown and laugh about the the crazy boomers calling about the communists taking over because. Joe Biden said socialism instead of capitalism or something else like that. Um, so we're looking at 2024, looking hopefully, hopefully uh, King DeSantis comes along to save us all. Kind of putting all my eggs in that basket. But uh, I'm, I'm with you, right? Just kind of sit and stay warm as the city burns and see what we can do. There was a, uh, I've been waiting for kind of a time, I've been reading this Twitter thread, uh, kind of back and forth, because I think there's a lot of truth. It's a guy named Tim DeRoach, and uh, he's, his Twitter bio, storyteller, problem solver, founder of Available to Tell, he's, words with, he's written for Barry Weiss, he's written for Quillette, author of Huck and Miguel, A Fine Line, and Whimsy and Woe. 
and a, kind of along the lines of what you were talking about, he has this kind of brief Twitter thread. I'm going to read the whole thing. And I think there's a lot of truth to this. And I think people have to work their ways out of this kind of stuff. Um, he was he was on with uh, the Ezra Klein. He was, listen, he was listening to Ezra Klein and a guy named Patrick Deneen, professor of political philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. And he says, why do both the right and the left regard the current moment with existential angst? He says, a hypothesis formed while listening to Ezra Klein and Patrick Deneen, both of whom are baffled that the other sees, quote, the other side as ascendant. He says, the right sees the left as being dominant in all cultural institutions, the universities, the media, Hollywood, K-12 schools. They fear the left has a massive structural advantage in those domains, and they're right. He says, the left doesn't feel dominant at all. Why don't we have universal health care restrictions on guns? They see the right as having an unfair structural advantage in the domain of electoral politics, e.g. the Electoral College, the Senate filibuster, and they're right. He says, but here's the ultimate irony. Most of the left feels that electoral politics is the most important domain. That's where real power is exercised. So they are disadvantaged in the sphere that is to them most important. Likewise, the right feels that culture, family, church, school, etc. is ultimately more important than the domain of electoral politics. So much like the left, the right is disadvantaged in the domain that they feel is most important. So you get an ever-escalating war in which the left tries to use cultural levers to influence electoral politics and usually fails, e.g. celebrity PSAs, imagined videos, whatever, while the right tries to use political power to influence the cultural institutions, the schools, the universities, the media, Hollywood, e.g., critical race theory laws, and usually fails. He says, it seems to me that this dynamic won't last forever and that you can kind of sort of can't imagine a finite number of possible endgames. Um... The more I read, the more I was just like, how is this, how is this truth not been spoken more? Because I think he's absolutely right on all of this stuff. When you look at the battles the left fights, they don't usually fight in media because they have the media. They don't usually fight over religion because they don't care about religion. They're trying to effectively stamp religion out. They're trying to destroy the kind of the core family. And then when you look at the political right, you look at like what we're fighting, and I'm certainly no one to talk. My my war is with a media that uh, warps reality to bend to bend the advantage towards one political party. And we saw that with Stacey Abrams this week, where we're going to redefine a heartbeat. Fuck you. What are you going to do? How are you going to stop us? You can't. Boom. Tomorrow, we're going to have every Ivy League school changing the definition of a heartbeat, and you can't fucking stop us. And that's literally their attitude. That's how they that's how they act. And so I think that there's a ton of truth to this. So when you see somebody like you mentioned DeSantis, when you see someone like DeSantis exercise political power over Disney or fly migrants uh, up to Martha's Vineyard, that's something that resonates with the political right. Not because it's, you know, it's simply like Trump. He fights. He's fighting for us. He's fighting whatever. Uh, because I truly don't believe Trump fought for anyone other than himself. But those things resonate because exactly what this guy says. You see a guy using political power within, you know, a purview to basically say to Disney, we're not doing this anymore. We're done. We tolerated you and we tolerate your fucking cartoons and we tolerate the fact that you do business in China. We tolerate all of that because you leave us alone. And I generally think that's what conservatives want. We, the, the music we listen to, we know that those bands probably hate us. The movies that we see, we know the actors fucking hate us. We're content to still pay to see your movies. We're content to still buy your music if you leave us the fuck alone. 
and this it's sort of like Disney where look, I just need my kid to shut up for an hour. <laughs> so I'm going to just put their ass in front of the TV and let them watch Frozen for the 300th time here, okay? And I'm going to deal with it. But then when Disney starts basically coming after what you personally believe and what your family believes and basically saying, look, it's not that we're just releasing a statement on our Twitter feed. We're going to use our lobbying arm of multi-million dollar fucking lawyers to influence laws in states now. We're going to lobby and we're going to actively work to make sure your politicians aren't elected. That's when we go, all right, we're fucking done. And I think that that's why DeSantis has resonated. He just says, we're done. We're not playing this game anymore. We're not playing the passive conservatism game anymore, plain and simple. And as I said, we're going on offense. And I don't think what he did with Disney was outside of that purview. I don't think what he did with Martha's Vineyard was outside of that purview. Uh, you see videos now online of farmers at the border where, you know, illegal immigrants are breaking into their homes. Does that mean every immigrant crossing the border is trying to break into people's homes? No, it does not. Not by any means at all. But we sit here and we go, this is a fucking problem. And our entire media has decided we're not going to pay attention to it unless it enters one of our rich elite blue enclaves. But when it's happening at the border and people are drowning and we just saw today in Florida, a, a deputy was killed. I think in a hit and run by an illegal immigrant. Send that guy to Martha's Vineyard. I was going to tweet that. Um, we just basically, as soon as, as soon as the left kind of starts exercising cultural power over our political beliefs, that's when we perk up and we take notice and we say, we're done. We're no, we're done with this. And I think what this guy is saying similar is when Donald Trump constitutionally fills three Supreme Court vacancies they know that will swing the Supreme Court for a generation, 30 to 40 years. Um, that's when they basically say the Supreme Court is illegitimate and needs to be replaced. So um, just just some thoughts. And I, this thread that I read from this guy, I've been looking at it. I've been reading it for a while. And I've, I've been wanting to read it either here or on the podcast. Uh, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. And so I, I guess once you if you accept those kinds of terms or whatever, that what he's saying is, is a lot of truth, then I think a lot of things make sense about what someone like DeSantis is doing. You know, Trump, Trump was a guy who, you know, he'd rattle off about building a wall and then he would also talk about Kanye West. And that's, that's kind of where people went, Oh, he's talking about Kanye West. He's going on Reddit. He's going into Rolling Stone. He's slapping the shit out of these people. And so we're, there's never going to be kind of a post-Trumpism. There's going to be a, a reformed conservatism, essentially, and, and kind of circling back to where we were at the beginning of this podcast. There's going to be pe pe people who accept that, and there's going to be people who resist it, and there's going to be people who actively fight it. And I don't, I guess I look at it and say, choose your corner and let the best monkey knife fight win. I'll give you the last word, Craig. I think we lost Julia, so I'll give her a minute to come back. But uh, if not, go ahead, Craig. I'll let you wrap it up. Oh, no, I'm I'm completely with you anecdotally. I, personally, I'm completely with you on that anecdotally. I can say that that's exactly the same sentiment that I hear, is that it's, it's people on the right wanting to use the political power that they believe we have to influence cultural issues. And there's people on the left talking about cultural issues, trying to influence political power. And it's a, a two ships crossing in the night, if you will, about the two different Americas and their vision of what's important and what's going on, um, which, yeah, is spot on. Anyway, I, also, I mean, don't get, 
Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's also an element that people exploit in this industry, right. where there they, there's a lot of money to be made about again rousing the rabble and, and keeping you upset and making you upset all the time. And I think it's important to also resist those things and to look at things, you know, through through a logical lens at stuff. There's there's stuff to me that isn't important. Um, and this is again one of these things I don't I don't always understand the white hot rage directed at certain pundits and stuff like that. When I'm just kind of like I think there's 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 bigger arguments being made, and I don't even particularly think the people you're upset at are the ones making them either pro or against. And so that's where I kind of just shy away from a lot of that stuff as well. Um, so you do have to be on the lookout, and there is a lot of that angry punditry that led to our current moment. And you know. I look at it and I'm just kind of like, that's, you can either push back against it or you can offer kind of a sober alternative. I try to offer a sober alternative, but also kind of in a funnier way, I guess, because that's just what I am. Um, and so you do have to, you do have to resist some of that cultural force. And I do think there are people that are hundred percent invested in, in basically keeping you upset. Uh, but I also happen to think that almost no more so are the people than the people that you see at the Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, ABC, CBS, NBC, and to a certain extent, Fox News. Absolutely. And uh, in the true conservative way, my wife is hollering to start movie night, so I'm going to go focus on my small little platoon and what I can control in my life and wish everybody cheers, enjoy your drink, and have a good weekend. And hopefully it's not a Disney film. All right, Craig. <laughs> it's not. Adios. Okay. Cheers. Uh, we lost Julia, um, but uh, I guess if she pops back up in my in my outro here, then uh, uh, I guess I'll have her up there. But I'm also I plan on kind of maybe doing a brunches for assholes topic tomorrow. So because uh, we just we get a different crowd at night than we do uh, in the daytime, and I know people can't always make them. So again, this was kind of a fun one. It's just a loose Friday night. Uh, round table chat at the bar thing. So thanks to all my uh, my brief, my brief callers. And thanks again always to listeners. Like I said, you've kept the show up towards the top of Colin. Um, you've kept me up there with people with speaking of platforms, infinite bigger platforms than I have. So again, that's all due to you guys coming in here and participating or just even listening. Um, so again, as long as you guys are interested in it, I'll just keep doing it. So again, thanks. Um, again, thanks to callers. This was episode 45, end of the week. We're all broke. We're all bruised. Uh, I hope your 401k somehow recover while uh, Joe Biden is enjoying his concert. And as always, as I said, don't forget to enjoy the work from the flames. I'm um, Stephen O. Miller. This is Versus Media Live. I will be back on Patreon on Tuesday. Uh, but like I said, I'm maybe going to try to fit one in tomorrow, late a.m., late brunches for assholes. So those of you that want to come speaking, come with your most asshole brunch dish possible. Thanks again, everyone. Go enjoy your Friday nights. Cheers.